0: Hello, this is Eric Topol with Ground Truths and I'm with my friend and colleague uh, who is an extraordinary fellow, Dr. Peter Hotez. He's the founding dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine and university professor at Baylor, also at Texas Children's, founding editor of the Public Library Science and Neglected Tropical Disease Journal. Uh, And
1: I think this is, Peter, your fifth book. That's my uh, fifth single author book. That's right. That's right. Fifth book.
0: So uh, that's pretty amazing. Peter, welcome. And it's great to have a chance to have this conversation with you. Oh, it's great to
1: be here and great to be with you, Eric. And, you know, I've learned so much from you during this pandemic and uh, my only regret is not getting to know you before the pandemic. My life would have been far richer. And uh, well, I I, th- I, th- I think feel- I've, First, got to really know about you. You were uh, our my medical school, Baylor College of Medicine, awarded you an honorary doctorate, and uh, and that's when I began reading about. Oh, it. I said, holy cow! Why had why haven't I been with this guy before? So, it's, oh my gosh! Uh, so you must have been there that year when I came to the graduation. No, or? I actually um, was uh, speaking at another graduation. That's why I ah, couldn't be there, <laughs> right? As you typically do, right?
0: Well, you know, it's kind of amazing to track your career besides, you know, your baccalaureate at Yale and PhD at Rockefeller, MD at Cornell, but you
1: started off, I I think, deep into hookworm.
0: Is that where you kind of got
1: your... You're, yeah you're and I'm stu- and I'm still there actually the uh the hookworm vaccine that I started working on as an MD PhD student at Rockefeller and Cornell is now in phase 2 clinical trials wow. Wow. so which as I tell people is about the average time frame for about 40 years is about a not an unusual time frame these parasites are obviously very tough targets uh oh, man. and then we have a you're, schistosomiasis you're... vaccine in clinical trials and a Chagas disease vaccine that's always been my lifelong passion is making vaccines for these neglected parasitic infections. And the story with COVID was um, I had a collaboration with Dr. Sarah Lustigman at the New York Blood Center who, and we were working on a river blindness vaccine for And she said, hey, I want you to meet these two scientists in New York Blood Center. They're working on something called coronaviruses, uh, coronavirus vaccines. They were making vaccines for Severe acute respiratory syndrome and SARS, and ultimately MERS, and so we we plugged their their some of their discoveries into our vaccine development machine, and they had found that if you were using the receptor binding domain of the of the spike protein of SARS and ultimately MERS, it pro, it produced an equivalent protective immune response, neutralizing antibodies without the immune enhancement, and that's what we wrote to the NIH to do and they supported us with a 6 million dollar grant back in 2012 to make SARS and MERS vaccines and and then when COVID-19 hit when the sequence came online in bioarchive in like early 2020 we just pivoted our program to COVID and, and we were able to hit the ground running and it worked everything just clicked and worked really well and uh, stars aligned and we were then transferred that technology We did it with no patent, minimizing strings attached to uh, India, Indonesia, Bangladesh, um, any place that we felt had the ability to scale up and produce it. India went the furthest. They uh, developed it into Corbivax, which has reached 75 million kids in India and uh, another 10 million. For their primary immunization, another 10 million is adult booster, and then Indonesia, developed their own version of our, of our technology called Indivac And, and, uh, that's also reaching millions of, of people. And now they're using it as a, also as a booster for Pfizer, because I think it may be a superior booster. So it was really exciting to, you know, after working on parasitic disease vaccines, which are tough targets and decades to get it through the clinical trials, because the pressure was on to move quickly, um, goes to show you when people prioritize it and also the fact that I think viruses are more straightforward targets than complex parasites and uh, and, well you know, that, it's that so in all in all about a hundred million doses have been administered and yeah now it's just a spectacular
0: story Corbivax and these other named uh, of the vaccine that, that you and uh, Maria batazzi uh, put together and without a patent at incredibly low cost and um, not in the U.S., which is so remarkable because, as we exchanged uh, recently, the U.S. Uh, the companies, and that's three Moderna, Pfizer, and Novavax, are going to charge well over one hundred ten dollars per booster of the the new booster, updated XBB one five, and you've got one that could be two dollars or four dollars. Yeah, that's right. Getting- so we're
1: making we're making the XBB recombinant protein booster of ours and. Um- and part of it's the technology. You can, you know, it's done through microbial fermentation and yeast. And it's done in a big bioreactor. And um, it's an older technology that's been around a couple of decades. And there's no limit to the amount you could scale. The yields are really high. So we can do this for 2 to $3 a dose. And it'd even be less so it wasn't for the cost of the adjuvant, the CPG. The nucleotide is probably the most expensive component. But the antigen is, you know, probably pennies uh, to, to, you know when you're doing it at that scale, and and uh, so that that's really meaningful. I'd like to get our XB booster into the U.S. It's, yeah, it's just but, no you know, respect. We're not, a, from- we're not a pharma company, so we don't we didn't get support from Operation Warp Speed, and um, so we didn't get any U.S. subsidies for that. And it's just very hard to get on the radar screen of BARDA and, and, and those agencies, because you know, that's they're all set up to work with pharma companies. Yeah, I know
0: it's it's just not right. And who pays for this is the the, the people, the public, because they you know the affordability is going to have a big influence on who gets boosters and is yeah, so, driving. So what it, I say is
1: we we provide you know you know the anti-vaccine guys like to call me a shill for pharma, not knowing what they're talking about. We've done the opposite, right? We've provided a path that shows you don't need to go to big pharma all the time and and so they should be embracing what we're doing. So we we've you know we have this new model for how you can get low cost uh vaccines out there. Not not to demonize the pharma companies either. They they do what they do and they do a lot of important uh innovation, but but there are other pathways especially for resource poor nations. So we'd love to get this vaccine In in the U.S., I think it's looking like it'll work just just as well. It's you know, but yeah, it's not. I don't want to demonize
0: the the vaccine companies either, but to raise the price fivefold just because it's not getting government subsidy and the billions that have been provided by the government through taxpayer um, monies. Yeah. Well, the Kaiser spread, Family uh,
1: Foundation reported that. They did an analysis that, that pharma, I think it was Pfizer and Moderna, got 25 to $30 billion yeah. in U.S. subsidies, either for development costs for Moderna. I think uh, Pfizer didn't accept development costs, but they both took advanced purchase money. So $30 billion, and, uh, and you know that's not how you show gratitude to the American people no, by jacking no, up the price yeah. times. For it. I think I said, guys, you know, have some situational awareness. I mean, do you want people to hate you? I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's and, what it looks like.
0: And, well, speaking uh, of, uh, before I get to kind of the anti-science, the, the, the deadly rise of anti-science, your new book, I did want to set it up that, you know, you spent a lot of your career besides working on these tropical diseases, challenging diseases, you know, leash mania and, um, you know, shagas, shistam somiasis, the ones you've mentioned, you've also stood up quite a bit for the low middle-income countries with books that you've written previously about, Forgotten People, Blue Marble, Health. And so I, I before I, I don't want to dismiss that because it's really important and it ties in with what the work you've done with the, the Corbovax or COVID vaccine. Now, what I really want to get into is the book that you wrote that, kind of ushered in your very deep personal interest in anti-science and anti-vax, which I'm going to, in a minute, ask you to differentiate. But your daughter, Rachel, you wrote a book about her and about um, vaccines not causing autism. So can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah. So as you point out, my first two books were about these what I would call forgotten diseases or forgotten people. In fact, that's what the first book was called, Forgotten People, Forgotten Diseases, which my kids used to call dad's forgotten book on forgotten people and <laughs> forgotten diseases. All the, all the... Now it's in its third edition. So, uh, um, so, but it talks about you know the how important these conditions are. It's just that they're widely prevalent. It's just that they're occurring among people who live in extreme poverty, including... People in poverty in the United States. That's why we set up our school of tropical medicine on the U.S. Gulf Coast. Uh, I didn't do it for the uh, summer uh, weather, uh, which is these days in this heat dome. It's like well, I'm living on planet Mercury right now in, in here, here in Texas. But um, and then so that that's what I, that's how I started learning how to advocate, you know, for people and for diseases through neglected diseases, but. You know, when we came to Texas, we saw this very aggressive anti-vaccine movement, and they were making false claims that vaccines cause autism. and And I said, "Look, I'm you know I'm a vaccine scientist here in Texas. Uh, I have a daughter with autism, Rachel, with intellectual disabilities. And so if I don't say something, who does?" And and then wrote the book: vaccines did not cause Rachel's autism, which. Unfortunately, it made me public enemy number one or two with anti vaccine groups mm-hmm. um, but you know it 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 does a deep dive explaining the science showing there's absolutely no link between vaccines and autism, but also an absence of plausibility because what we know about autism how it begins in early fetal brain development through the action of autism genes and uh and we actually did whole exome genomic sequencing on on Rachel and my wife Anne, and I, and we found rachel's autism gene, which is like many of them, involved in early neuronal communication and connections. It was actually a neuronal cytoskeleton gene, mm-hmm. as are many, mm-hmm. in this case, a neuronal spectrum. And that one hadn't been reported before, but other neuronal cytoskeleton genes had been reported by the Broad Institute at Harvard, MIT, and others. And and that was important to have that alternative uh, narrative because cause the refrain from always was, okay, doc, if vaccines don't do it, what does cause autism? And, being able to have that other side of the story i think is very compelling
0: what was um, it the the fabricated paper by andrew wakefield in the lancet that that got all this started or did it really annotate the, the article there was something theory. before
1: in the 80s about the dpt the diphtheria pertussis tetanus vaccine claiming it caused you know, seizures, and then could lead to neurodevelopmental difficulties. But it really took off with the Mm -hmm. Wakefield paper in 1998, published in the Lancet. And that claimed that the MMR vaccine, a live virus vaccine, had the ability to replicate in the colon of kids. And somehow that led to pervasive developmental disorder. That was the term used back then, and that was Rachel's diagnosis. And it never made sense to me how something because the reason it's pervasive is it's it's global in in the central nervous system in, in the brain and how how could something postnatally do something like that? I mean, there is, there are epigenetic underpinnings of autism as well, and that's fun, Eric. You ever talk to ever try to talk to lay audience about epigenetics? <laughs> that's a tough. That, that's a tough. You start talking about microRNAs and. DNA methylation yeah, and histone modification, it, just, uh, the, the lights oh, go out pretty quickly, but. chromatin and but, histone modification. Right. Bye-bye. Right, yeah. yeah right. You got that right. one. That's,
0: but, so that's, um, but, that, but that was your really, you know.
1: you. you but that's mentioned. when, you know, I started going up against Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and and, and all that was, that was pre-pandemic. Um, that was in 2018, right? 2017. Um, Trump came out and said, you know, it was about to be inaugurated and, and. RFK Jr said he was going to be appointed to run a vaccine commission by the Trump administration and and I actually was sitting you know in my office and my assistant said um uh Dr. Francis Collins and Dr. Anthony Fauci are on the phone do you have time to talk with them and I said yeah I think so and uh and uh, and and they arranged they had arranged for me to because I have a daughter with autism, could articulate why vaccines don't cause out range for me to speak uh, with RFK Jr. through through a mediator, and 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 it didn't go well. He was just really dug in, and, so he, and he was just
0: as bad then as now.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was just you know kept on, you know, as I say, moving the goalposts. You couldn't pin him down. Was he talking about uh, MMR? Was he talking about thimerosal? Was he talking about spacing vaccines too close together, alumin vaccines you just that always kept on moving around and and then it was not even autism at times you were talking about it was something called chronic illness you know you know what do you do with that and, mm-hmm. so I, and that's one when, when I was challenged by you know Joe Rogan and Elon to debate r f Jr. It's one of the reasons I don't want to do it because i I knew you know doing it in public would be no different from doing this in 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 private that it would not be a a productive uh, conversation yeah no
0: that i i do want to get into that because that was the latest chapter of kind of vicious anti-science which was taking on covid and vaccines and the whole ball of wax whereby um you were challenged by joe rogan uh, on his very big podcast which apparently is you know bigger than cnn or uh-huh. uh, various uh cable news networks which i had uh, done i had been on his show a couple yeah. of times and that was yeah. and that was
1: okay i mean i actually liked the experience quite a bit and
0: um and he challenged and, you to go on with rfk jr and then elon musk you know joined
1: and you know actually started before then about the week before or a few days before steve Bannon. Publicly declared me a criminal, and uh, and and you know, which I said, wow, that's that's something. And then Roger Stone weighed in, so it was this whole sort of frontal attack from well, people I mean, with extremist viewpoints. And, there's been uh, a
0: long history, and Tuckle Carlson in the book, you, uh, quote, he's referring to Hotez, is a misinformation machine, constantly
1: spewing insanity. Speaking of projecting things, my goodness, yeah, yeah well, he, uh, did he did that you know, he, that was, that was in 2022. It was, he went on his broadcast the, the evening after the evening of the, in the, during that day, I, with Mary Elena, I was, we were nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. And I guess, and I don't know if the two were related or not. I think it may have <laughs> driven him off the edge. And then he just went on this rant against me and you know, I claimed I have no experience anything about COVID. I mean, we had made two COVID vaccines, right? And transferred the technology, nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize and just, you know, omitted all of that. But this is how these guys work. It's it's all about asserting control and and it seems to come from an extremist element of the of the far right. Um and 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 it's not that I'm a very political Person at all. I mean, you know, I've been here in Texas now for twelve years, and gotten, you know, I've gotten to know people like Jim Baker and his wife Susan Baker, and and you know, a lot of prominent Republicans here in Texas. That that wasn't an issue. This is something sort of weird and and twisted. And and the point that I make in the book is, and it's not just a theoretical concern or a construct. It's the fact that so many americans lost their lives during the delta and ba1 omicron waves in 2021 2022 after vaccines were widely and freely available because they refused a vaccine um so vaccines were rolled out in 2021 um we started strong and then vaccination rates stalled and then we didn't get very far by this after the spring because there was this launch of an of of a wave of what I call anti-vaccine or anti-science aggression, that deliberately sought to convince Americans not to take a COVID vaccine, and particularly yeah, your, in, 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 your chapter, in Texas.
0: Yeah, your chapter in the book "Red COVID" yeah uh, gets into it, quantifies it, hundreds of thousands of lives lost. And I know you've seen some of the papers whereby studies in red states uh, or states like Ohio and Florida showing the 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 connection between yeah, um, yeah. The, the... I, I
1: relied heavily on this guy Charles Gaba, who has a, a website called ACA Signups and he did some really in you know strong analysis showing that the that the people who were refusing COVID vaccines and losing their lives were overwhelmingly in red states and could even show the redder the county, as measured by voters, the lower the immunization rate and higher the death rates and the term red COVID. Um, came from uh, David Leonhardt of the New York Times wrote an article about Charles Gabba's work. They called it "Red COVID" and did a lot of updates. And the data is so strong. I mean, so much so that um, uh, one uh, one person at the Kaiser Family Foundation wrote, "If you wanted to." ask me whether or not a person was vaccinated and I could only know one thing about them. You know, she said the one thing I'd want to know is what political party they're affiliated with. It was, it's, it's that strong. And it's, and it's not that I care about your politics, even your extreme views, but somehow we have to uncouple this one from it because somehow not getting vaccinated has been added to the canon of stuff that you're supposed to believe in if you are, if you're down that rabbit hole watching Fox news every night or, or listening to Rogan podcasts and that sort of stuff. And somehow we have to uncouple those two. And it's the hardest thing I've ever had to do. First of all, it's unpleasant to talk about because all of, you know, your training, Eric, mine as well is, you know, said you don't talk about politics and you're, you know, we're supposed to be above all that, but what do you do when the, Death and dying is so strong on, on one side, and and um, uh, I I was in uh, East Texas uh, not too long ago we were giving grand rounds at a new medical school in East Texas in Tyler, Texas, and very conservative part of the state, and and you know basically everyone you talk to has lost a loved one mm-hmm. because they refused the COVID vaccine and died. I mean that, yeah. that's <sighs> that's where you really start to see that, and then. And these people are wonderful people. I gave uh um you know uh Bob Harrington at uh at uh, at Stanford and to chair medicine. Now he's gonna be the dean of Cornell. He he invited me with Michelle Barry to to give grand rounds, medical grand rounds at Stanford. And I said, Look, if if my car had broken down, um and had a flat tire and you and I can't fix anything. I'm I'm a disaster at fixing anything. So if you said, okay, where, you had the choice, where, where do you want your car broken down? In Palo Alto, California, where Stanford is, or very wealthy uh, enclave or East Texas, I'd say I'd pick East Texas in a second, because in East Texas, they'd be fighting over who, you know, was going to rush to help you change your tire.
0: These are, you
1: know, just incredible people. And, and they were victims. They were victims of, this far-right attacks from, from Fox News. And one of the things I do in the book is, you know, the documentation is really strong. Media Matters, the Watchdog Group has looked at the evening broadcasts of Tucker Carlson, Laura Ingram, and and Hannity, and, you know, can I, you know, actually identify the anti-vaccine content with each broadcast during the summer and fall. And then our uh, a social science research group out of ETH Zurich, the Federal University of Technology of of Zurich where Einstein studied actually you know one of the great universities did another analysis and showed that watching Fox News is one of the great predictors of refusing a vaccine and and so that those were the amplifiers but those generating a lot of the messages were elected leaders coming out of the House Freedom Caucus or senator you know Johnson this conservative senator I don't even like to use the word conservative because it's not really that they're conservative, they're extremists. And yeah. uh, Senator Johnson of, of Wisconsin or uh, Rand Paul, you know, of, of Kentucky, you know. A physician, you know physician. And the CPAC conference uh, mm-hmm. of conservatives in Dallas in 2021. They said, first, you're gonna, they're going to vaccinate you, and then they're going to take away your guns and your Bibles. And as ridiculous as that sounds to us, people in my state of Texas and elsewhere in the South accepted it and didn't take a COVID vaccine and paid for it with their lives. And and how do we, you know, begin walking that back? And and the point of writing the book said, well, the first step is to at least describe it so people can know what we're talking about. Because I think right now, when you look at the way people talk about anti-vaccine or anti-science stuff, they, they call it misinformation or the infodemic, like it's just some random junk that appears out of nowhere on the internet and it's not any of those things it's it's organized it's well financed it's and it's politically motivated and it's killing americans on on a massive scale so i said look you know i i went i did my md and phd in new york at rockefeller and cornell i Devoted my life to becoming a vaccine scientist. You know, the motto of Rockefeller University used to be the Rockefeller Institute of Medical Research is translates to science for the benefit of humanity. And and I believe making vaccines is one of the high expressions of it. And I think most physician scientists believe I think you believe that too. And Absolutely. and that's why you're you're in this as well. You know, not vaccines, but you know, other life saving interventions. And and so I said, Well, now making vaccines is not enough. Because now we have to counter all of this anti-vaccine stuff, and there's was nobody better, you know, in terms of my training and my background going up against anti-vaccine movements because of Rachel to do this. So I, I've done it, and yeah,
0: well, you've done it all right.
1: uh, (laughs) That's that's what my wife Ann says. You've done it all right. (laughs) right.
0: Well, as I wrote in your, uh, with your book, the blurb about you are a new species the physician scientist warrior, and you are, Peter, because you're the only one of all the physicians, we're talking about a million docs almost in this country, who has stood up. And you've put your life at risk, your family at risk. You've had death threats. You've had the people you know, come right to your house. Uh, and so what you've described, this kind of coalescence of political will of extremists, uh, media, uh, of course, amplification, because it benefits them. They, they're they selling more, uh, you know, they get more viewers, more uh, spots for commercials and more they can charge. And then you even, as you described in the book so, um, so well, is you even have outside interested parties like Russia as part of this organization of this coalescence of forces that are taking on the truth. That are promoting anti-science, that are winding up people are dying or, yeah, or yeah.
1: having a, you know serious yeah, morbidity. in the, in the right? case of in the case of Russia, it's a it's a slightly different motivation. What they're doing is they're filling the internet and social media with both anti-vaccine messages and pro-vaccine mm, messages because mm. they they have a different agenda. Their agenda is destabilized democracies. So what they're doing is they're cherry picking certain issues that they can use as a wedge to sow discord. And so when they saw the stuff about vaccines, yeah, they'll flood it with both pro and anti vaccine message. And you see the stuff on Twitter. So much of it is computer oh. generated and it's just repeats the same stuff over and over again. And, and a lot of that are, you know, some of that, not all the only Russia, I think China's doing it, North Korea, Iran's doing it, but particularly Russia and, um, and that was documented by a colleague of mine David Bronietoski, who's a computer scientist at George Washington University has really done a deep dive in that so, so yeah, I think a lot of people are that. not
0: aware that's what your book book brings to light of how organized, how financed you know how this thing is a machine from coming from many different domains you know and uh for different interests as you as you just summarized. So it's it's actually scary and Besides you standing up and facing, you know, the uh, really ultimate uh, bravery with all of these factions attacking you, literally ad hominem, you know, personally attacking you, then you have, um, uh, you know, this continues to get legs throughout the pandemic, and there's no counter as as you've touched on
1: what is going to be done? You can't stand up alone on this. Yeah, well, there's a a couple of things. First of all, it's not only attacking the science, it's attacking the scientists, right? Right, right, exactly. And you get get it too as as well. I mean, it's basically portraying scientists as enemies of the state, um, which I think is so dangerous. I mean, as I like to say, you know, this is a nation – that's built on science and technology, right? The, you know, the strengths of our research universities and institutions like Scripps, like Baylor, like Rockefeller, like MIT and Stanford and university of Michigan and university of Chicago. This is what, you know, helped us defeat fascism in world war two as evidenced by the Oppenheimer movie, right. Or, and, or allowed us to achieve so many things. Why people so admire our nation when I served as U S science envoy uh, in the Obama administration the State Department and the White House I mean that's where people loved our country, is they all want to study at our research universities or they want their kids to study at our research universities and and by attacking not only science but the scientists I think it's weakening our stature uh, globally and 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 I think that's that that's another aspect I think the other problem is we we don't get the backing that I think we should from the scientific societies Mm -hmm. and at times, even the national academies, I think they, they could be out there more. Um, exactly why, you know, I think part of it is they see, they see how I get beat up and they say, well, who wants that? Right. And 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 I understand that, but I think also, you know, they, they depend on oftentimes on government funding. And I think they're worried that, you know, if they're, it, again it's this idea that you have to be politically neutral even if it favors the tormentor or the aggressor to paraphrase Desmond Tutu or Luyisel and, and 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 that that's that's part of it as well i mean i, I mean i do find it meaningful it's scary at times and I, but i do find it meaningful to to have this role but um getting getting more help and backing i mean we're our our uni i mean Baylor College of Medicine Texas Children's Hospital been pretty good you know st- you know ha- having my back it's not that way at every and i know Scripps has been really strong with 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 what Christian Anderson's had had to deal with um uh around uh, you know all the phony baloney around covid origins but but not all academic health centers are that way and and i think we need our university presidents to be more vocal on this issue, and and too often they're not, as well as our academies and our, our scientific societies, because this is, I believe, going to do irreparable harm to to well, science. And, yeah, and, and, you know,
0: in my experience too, we, we've actually seen you know academic physicians who have basically you know supported conspiracy theories. Uh, who have detracted from evidence and science, you in know, a, in, a, in a major way. Some of at leading universities here, as you, as you uh, mentioned, and when I've contacted and others, their leadership, they say, "Well, freedom of speech, freedom of speech," because they're afraid to confront them. Because you know all the different things we've we you've mentioned social media, but no, the universities don't want to get attacked on social media. They're afraid of that. They're afraid of of um, calling out, you know, one of the people, faculty members, who are deliberately, you know, uh, garnering a yeah, lot of yeah, and, and the
1: point is, it's, it's not just, you know, freedom of speech in the sense of espousing... Uh, you know crazy views it's the fact that they're going on the attack against mm-hmm. i mean i don't attack these guys, but they attack me with with impunity and yes. say terrible thing untrue things about me i mean where's there's isn't there something called professionalism or or yeah, ethics right. uh, don't, don't 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 we aren't we supposed to be in, instilling that in our, in our faculty and and that that doesn't seem to happen no, so that, no, that's they, troubling they, as well they're
0: they're making credible scientists who are doing the best they can into pinatas right. and attacking them with, and it can't, it can't be reciprocated because that's, that's beneath professionalism. I mean, just as you say, so, you know, you just keep, they just keep going at it. So what you have is now we've added all these different entities and I'll add more. One more is AI, which is going to further blur truth and yeah.
1: and false uh falsehoods. Um yeah, Renee Deresta at the Stanford Internet Observatory. I don't know if you know Renee, she does fabulous work and she's written about, you know, what happens when, you know, all of the anti science, anti vaccine stuff is now imbued with AI and, you know, it's gonna become even more sophisticated and more difficult to No,
0: there's there's gonna be a video of you saying that, you know, these vaccines are killing people, uh, don't get a booster and it'll be just like you with your voice. Yeah, well they already
1: already have now these these few things on YouTube that claim I'm secretly Jack Black the uh, actor (laughs) and that um, the CIA has arranged it so that Jack Black Plays this fictional character named Doctor uh, Peter Hotez. and they do all these things like, you know, focus in on my eyes and do like eye uh, identification. It's just, it's just nuts. I mean, what, what's out there?
0: Well, has there been a time in these months where you were very scared, you, you're for yourself or your family because of all the incredible. Density uh, what appears to be very serious threats and during, during the oppression.
1: day during the day I'm okay. I mean, and you know when the when the when the Steve Bannon stuff and uh, Joe Rogan stuff, then I had the stalking at the house, and you know I had to have a Houston Police Department officer parked in front of my house or a Harris County Sheriff. That that was troublesome but it it's more of during the day i'm fine i'm working i'm talking you know to people like you and in lab meetings doing what scientists do writing grants and throwing pencils at the wall when you get a paper with a major review or, or a major revision or re- rejection but but it's I think at night you know we wake up in the middle of the night and this it's the stuff does start to mess with your head at times yeah. and it's uh well it, and it, it, you
0: travel it, a lot and you, you've, I think, expressed that hey, you could be given a talk in an innocent place, and somebody could come, you know, attack you there.
1: Yeah, so uh, no. I have to, I have, I have security now at, at major venues when I speak. Um, uh, and you know, I had an, there was an incident at the World Vaccine Congress in Washington. There were protesters out in front of the, out in front of the convention center waiting for me. That mm. that wasn't fun. And. Mm. So even, you know, we've got to, we'll see what happens with the, when the, you know, I'm doing a number of events around the book in Washington, D.C. and New York and elsewhere. We'll we'll see how that goes. Um, so. Um,
0: well, it, a, you're, you're, I know you well enough to know that you're an optimistic person. I mean, you've been smiling and we've been laughing during this and discussing some very heavy, serious stuff. What gives you still optimism that this can someday get on track?
1: Well, I think it could get worse before it gets better, first of all, and, and two fronts. One, you know, I had the opportunity to meet with uh, Dr. Tedros, the World Health Director General of the World Health Organization, towards the end of last year, and uh, to say this could be the warm up act in the sense that now it's globalizing. I'm anticipating spillover to all childhood immunization rates and, you know, you're starting to see the same U.S. style of anti-vaccine rhetoric now, you know, even in low and middle income countries on the African continent and South Asia. So I worry about, you know, measles and polio, both in the U.S. and, and globally. I think that's, that's I'm worried about that. The other is, you know, a lot of this is heating up, I think, because of the 2024 presidential election. Um I think one was that with with our, our mutual friend and colleague Anthony Fauci. Now that he's out of government, um he's not as visible as he was. I think they're the the extremists are looking around for another they need a monster, right, to to galvanize the base. And I think I've become that monster, you know, that's that's one thing I'm worried about. But also it was I talk to um probably someone you've seen on Twitter um, and I've gotten to know her um, somewhat. I'm very impressed with her, Molly Jongfast, who's Mm -hmm. a Mm -hmm. commentator on CNN and MSNBC. And she, you know, put out there and she told me privately and put it out in public that, you know, one of the reasons why um, things are so vicious around RFK Jr. is they see him as a third party Mm -hmm. candidate that could take Biden votes away and help create a path for Trump being elected. So, by you know, by having me debate him, it it kind of elevate in its own way elevated his stature and made him seem like a more serious person. Right. right. And my refusal, you know, popped their bubble. And that that's one of the reasons why, why they're so angry. So this is very much tied, I think, to the 2024 presidential election. And that's what you're having seen with the House subcommittee hearings too, portraying scientists as enemies of the state. It's all for I mean, I don't know if you've seen this the that House subcommittee Twitter site. It actually says something like, "We're selling popcorn." You know, we're, yeah, no, I know. They're, 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 they're not they're not even pretending it's any yeah, they, political theater for Fox News soundbites. So I think know, we're going to see is the word, all right, Yeah, and and but you know, but the attacks on biomedical science, I think, are going to be you know have a long term effect. If for no other reason, I think people are going to think twice about wanting to do a PhD in biomedical scientist or become an MD PhD scientist when they see that, you know, we're, well, that's we're what you,
0: you also way. covered that really well in the, yeah. in the book. But um, when you think about where we are now with climate crisis or we're facing future pandemics, not just the one we're still working through here, um, where is the hope that we can? counter this i mean we need armies of people like you we need as you say the scientific um, establishment and community all stand up that that gets me to one of the things that makes you uh, differentiate you from most physicians and scientists you write books you are active on social media you appear on the media most scientists grew up to have their head down do the work, do good science, get their stuff published and get grants and you know, try to advance the field. And physicians doing that or taking care of patients, same kind of thing. What prompted you in your career to say, "Hey, you know, that's not enough. I got another dimension." And why how can we get millions of clinicians and scientists to rally to do what in, you're doing.
1: Well, in my in my case, I, it's not that I was deliberately seeking to be a public figure, or what some call a public intellectual. It was more the case, the issues that I was most interested in, nobody was talking about. Mm. And nobody was going to talk about it. So if I didn't talk about it, it wasn't going to be talked about. So neglected tropical diseases, you know, yeah, it was, for it was, and and I had two colleagues in the UK, Alan Fennec and David Mullen, you felt the same way. And so we began, we became the three musketeers of the neglected tropical disease space. And I found that extremely meaningful and interesting. And it was the same with, with vaccines. So although I I'm often in the, you know, doing a lot of public engagement, if you notice, I don't try to be like some people who do it very well, like Asanje Gupta or or some others that will, or Megan Rainey that will talk about you know just about any health issue. I, I don't try to do that. I sort of stay. It's a wide lane, but I try to stay in my lane around infectious, neglected diseases, and and, and vaccines, and I right. think that's very important. Now, in terms of you know the statement most scientists or physician scientists want to keep their head down, write their grants and paper. I think that's perfectly fine. I don't think people should be forced to do it. But I think there's enough of us out there that want to do it but don't know how to get started and don't feel safe doing it. And so I think we need to change that culture. I think Mm -hmm. we need to offer science communication to our graduate students in their PhD programs or in MD-PhD programs. Um, for those who want to do it, or in residency training or fellowship training, and so that because there there are things you can learn. I mean, we had to do it by trial and error, and in my case, more error than trial. But 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 there is a there is there are things you can learn from people who do this uh, professionally. So I think that's important. I think the other is we need to change the culture of the institutions. You know, I, I get evaluated just like you do, um, like everybody, like any you know, senior scientist or professor at a university. And, you know, what do they ask me about? They ask me about my grants and, and my papers, preferably in high impact journals. And they ask me, and I don't see patients anymore. So they don't ask me about my clinical revenue, but they ask me about my grants and papers and my grants and papers and my grants and papers. Okay. <laughs> There's not even any place on my form, my annual evaluation from to put in the single author books I've written much less, you know, yeah. the, the opinion pieces I've written or certainly not social media or even or even the cable news channel. So so it basically the academic health center is sending the message. And I don't think that's unique. I think that's probably the rule in most places. I think the the culture of academic health centers is they're basically they're sending a message saying, well, we don't consider that stuff important. And somehow we have to make it important um, uh, I think- for those who want to do it um absolutely to, to, you're, to you're, that message.
0: you're you're pointing out a critical step that has to be undertaken in the future um it'll take time to get that to gel hopefully but if it's promoted actively i certainly um promote that i know you do uh, with yeah, i think your, i think most host, most
1: offices of communications and academic health centers As i said baylor and Texas Children's is pretty good better than most but most you know don't even like their docs and scientists speaking yeah. out, right? Yeah. They, they want to control the message. It's all about, you know, they're very risk averse. They're protecting the reputation of the institution. They only see the risk side. They don't, you know, if, you know, you want to speak about social justice or or combating anti science. Well, you know, we guess we can't stop you, but they sort of cringe at, at the idea. And then, you know, they say, well, you know, ultimately, you're a professor or a scientist here. You have academic freedom. Da, yeah, da, but da, but, da, but don't screw yeah, this up, right? And, and, so and that, don't that put that the is institution a, at risk. Right?
0: You're describing exactly how yeah. the, um,
1: university communications uh, worked, yeah. but yeah. the point is, and so you and do I, it with the sort of Damocles over your head, and and you know, as you know, and as anyone knows, if you do it enough, you will screw it up eventually, right? Everybody does, and and you know, you're going to make mistakes. That's how you learn. You make mistakes, and you you autocorrect, but. But you have to have that freedom to be able to make mistakes. And and right right, now, that's not there either.
0: What what you're driving at, though, um, altogether, is that uh, we're defenseless. That is, if you have an organized, financed, coordinated attack on science and also, of course, on vaccines, and you have no defense, you have i mean it's hard for the government to stand up because they're part of what the conspiracy theory is is, is uh, against and you and and the scientific community the clinician community is you know kind of handcuffed as you are getting at and also you know that's not the culture that's unwilling but something's got to give and this is one thing i think you're really reinforcing that that should be a, a pathway to countering i mean we can't clone you You know, we can't. We need lots of warriors. We need, you know, thousands and hundreds of thousands of points of light uh, who support data and evidence, as best that they can. And we don't have that today.
1: Yeah, and we we need to cultivate that. So, I'm in discussions, um, not only with people like yourself, but other colleagues about should we try to create, whether it's a nonprofit of five hundred one c three or c four. Um, the climate scientists are ahead of the game on this. Yeah, I, I talk yeah. to Michael Mann every now and then, and, and you know they've got a climate science defense fund. They they seem to be because they've they've experienced this for longer than we have. You know the, this all started a decade before with attacks against climate scientists. You know, should in the book I talk about, should we create something like a Southern Poverty Law Center equivalent to to protect science and scientists? And and I think we need that because the existing institutions don't seem willing to to create something like that it's somehow seen as too edgy or too out there and right and um it shouldn't be but but again this is a uh, i think a, a great opportunity for college presidents to, to step up and and they're not Doing that. They're they're also pretty risk-averse. So I think, you know, getting getting the heads of the academic health centers, getting the college president, university presidents to say, hey, this is important because otherwise science is at risk. And yeah. and you're already starting to see some crazy stuff come out of the NIH now about doing international research. They're trying to put in Rules to say they want, you know, if you have international collaborators, you're supposed to collect their notebooks and <laughs> translate the. How are you going to do that? That's that's completely it's impossible. I mean, it's and who's going to review it and who's going to sign off in general legal counsel at the university? And that's basically going to halt international research. And we have to recognize that we need this because the threats are coming. Right? I mean, and. It, cl- Cl- climate climate change is real and pandemic threats are real. We're going to see another major coronavirus pandemic possibly before twenty thirty or a flu or an arbovirus and and we're we're we need this is a time we need to be uh, reinforcing our, our virology research and our infectious disease research not a time to. You know, start dismantling it, which is what the House hearings are are meant to do and what some of these new NIH rulings are meant to do. So it's going to take a lot of strong players in in, in government and at universities to stand up to this.
0: Well, if we ever need to be vaccinated or immunized, it's against this. And uh, I hope that something will give uh, to start to provide uh, an antidote to what is uh, a relentless progression. Of, uh, in Iceland, I said, you captured so uh, elegantly, eloquently in in your book, Peter. So thanks for writing that. Uh, thanks for joining today. Uh, I know we'll have, as we do every week, conversations. Uh, yeah, you, you've been
1: a you've been an amazing friend and colleague, Eric, and I've learned so much from you. And, and no, uh, no, I, and, I feel I just a, you. Uh,
0: thank you. I I I think it's completely uh, reciprocal from what you bring to this table of trying to make. It's a better place for advancing science, a search for the, for the truth of what's really going on out there, rather than having to deal with wacky, you know, extremists that are advancing things for various purposes that are that are um, nefarious in many cases. So appreciate it. Uh, we'll be talking some more, and uh, this has been uh, a really uh, for me an enriching uh, conversation.
1: Same, same, Eric, and uh, thank you so much for giving this attention and. The Dialogue To Be Continued.